All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Yeah. Dear Father, uh, we want to lift up to you Afghanistan tonight. Uh, I know we're looking at some apocalyptic literature tonight. We're going to study your plan for the end times. And it's supposed to bring encouragement to our hearts to see that you have a plan uh, and that it's not outside of your control. Although sometimes that looks a little hard for us to understand. We know that ultimately your kingdom will prevail and your son will be the ruler over this world. We see many tyrannical governments uh, that destroy life, but your son came to give life. So, Lord, we want to thank you uh, that you've given us this gift of prophecy, that we can have our hearts encouraged even in dark times. Mm -hmm. Lord, we want to lift up to you tonight this study. Uh, we pray that uh, you touch our hearts and our minds with understanding, uh, that we can come to better understand you and your love for us through your, through your word. We ask all these things, Lord, for your glory. Amen. Yeah. Amen. All right. So tonight we are talking about the kingdom of darkness, and uh, we're going to finally encounter a character who's kind of been hiding in the shadows through the whole beginning of the book. Now he comes out into the, the forefront, and uh, just as this is the middle of the book of Revelation, so he does not become fully apparent until the middle of the tribulation. He will be there the entire time. In fact, he will be an adult at the beginning. Of the tribulation and he will be in power uh, but he may not be identifiable at the beginning or until the middle uh, because there's a very significant event that will be the the only time where we can for sure pinpoint and say this is the antichrist um, until then uh, even after the tribulation has begun our best guesses is all that they are and uh his identity will be one coming like a Messiah. A Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. It is the Christ in Greek, but he's not the anointed one of God. He is the anointed one of Satan. He will be the man who comes claiming to be God, just as Satan claims to be God. And he will come promising salvation of a temporal sort. Um, but where God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper, Satan is a covenant maker and a covenant breaker. Um, so that is what we will look at tonight. <clears throat> so starting in verse 1, uh, we see the connection to the previous chapter, chapter 12, uh, where Satan, the, the dragon of old, was forefront. So we read, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now this continues the parenthesis in the book of Revelation, uh, which has already been established to be full of symbols. In chapter 12, we looked at our reasonings why uh, why we are able to interpret these symbolically where we really want to strive to interpret the, the book of Revelation literally. So this interpretive or this symbolic interpretation is a literal interpretation because we wait for the text to tell us it is symbolic. 
and therefore we take the text at its word when it says it is using symbols uh, we interpret them as symbols when it does not say it is using symbols uh, we have no better recourse than to assume that it's speaking realistically but these symbols continuing on from chapter 12 uh, are also interpreted for us within the context. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, we had to look back to the Old Testament to understand the, the imagery because that imagery was a consistent Jewish image of, uh, of Israel all the way back to uh, chapter 37 of Genesis. But for the rest of the symbols in these two chapters, chapters 12 and 13, we have answers within the book of Revelation for what these symbols are, and also in the book of Daniel, which is its Old Testament companion. In fact, some even say that Daniel is the key to understanding Revelation, that if you divorce the Old Testament from the New, um, the New Testament loses all understandability, whereas the Old Testament still stands on its own, um, as it did in the times of, uh, of the law. So following that principle of allowing scripture to interpret scripture, um, a lot of these symbols are interpreted for us later in the book in chapter 17. So we can read there in verses 7 and 8. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? This is the angel speaking to John, interpreting these visions for him. He says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and uh, go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So we see that these seven heads and ten horns are uh, are this beast that will be in power on the earth uh, later on uh, together with the woman that rides the beast and that will be a political power that comes up alongside a religious power uh, the political power will end up throwing down that uh, that religious power but we continue to read um, in verses 9 to 11 here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. They are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the sevens. And he goes to destruction. Now, this sounds a lot like uh, a word problem in math. Uh, <laughs> So it's not the easiest to read, but it really does tell us a lot uh, in a short passage here. Well, often these seven mountains are, um, it is, uh, they're attempted to be understood by many as looking for a city that has seven mountain peaks. Um, some have identified this as Rome. Others, uh, I think even Seattle has seven hills. So uh, I have oh. heard an interpretation that Seattle is the uh, is the foundation of the Antichrist's kingdom. Probably. But uh, unfortunately, this is, here. this is probably not the case. Um, 
just as the seven heads are symbolic, so these seven mountains are symbolic, which the woman sits on, because these seven mountains are then interpreted for us. So he's using two different images and one interpretation. So he says, these are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And these are, uh, again, interpreted for us in the book of Daniel, where we see uh, five world kingdoms that will have fallen by the time the end comes. And there will be one last, uh, one last world kingdom to dominate. And that last world kingdom, being the Roman Empire, comes in two waves. Uh, so we're, we're going to take a, large, or a closer look at that, but we're going to continue on in our context in 17. It says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These uh, have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So now we've got a set of seven kings, and we've got a set of ten kings. Uh, but the seven are told to us, uh, five of them being in the past tense, one of them being present. It is the last king, which is part of a 10-king federation. Uh, this, again, is explained to us in greater detail in Daniel, where we've got a little horn that sprouts up among 10, conquers three of them, and becomes a federation of seven kings. Uh, so a simple way to explain what is going on here is that in the book of Daniel, which we'll look at um, in a moment, God gives to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and then in Daniel, or to Daniel in chapter 7, uh, a prophecy of the kingdoms of the earth that are ruled by Gentiles. And these would be Gentile world rulers, world powers. Um, and it starts all the way back with uh, Egypt and uh, Assyria. And then in the context of Daniel, when they are in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, that is the third world government. So for Nebuchadnezzar, he's given a list of four kings, starting with himself um, being Babylon, then comes Medo-Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. And Rome is broken into two different sections. It's both the legs of iron and also the feet of clay and iron. And in uh, Daniel chapter 2, the ten toes are the ten kings of the final uh, government power. So here we've got a very similar image where we have the final uh, inflection of a world power under Gentile rule, which is broken into ten kingdoms that are confederated together. This antichrist that we have in our context tonight is one of those ten kings and he will conquer three of the kings uh, and himself become uh, the seventh but head over the other kings. <clears throat> so in uh, Revelation 17, 15, it says, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where the, where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Uh, so we Again, remember the beast, the first beast comes out of the sea. Uh, this is identified in Revelation chapter 17 as the multitude of nations and tongues, which is a very Jewish way of saying the Gentiles. Uh, 
it is most likely, though we cannot be dogmatic, that the Antichrist will not be a Jew, uh, but will be uh, a Gentile. And that becomes important because the false prophet will probably be a Jew, and we'll see him coming out of the land, not coming out of the sea next week. <clears throat> All right, so now we turn our eyes to Daniel. We've looked at our local context, Revelation 17, in order to interpret the symbols in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, but now we look back to Daniel and see a little bit of the history of these symbols and how the Jewish mind would have understood them. So in Daniel 7, uh, chap or chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, this is where God gives Daniel the same vision that he gave Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, uh, of a magnificent statue, uh, which is 10 Gentile kingdoms. But instead of a magnificent statue um, that is probably very wondrous to behold, he gives him four ferocious beasts. And this is because of the perspective of the one receiving the vision. To Nebuchadnezzar being a Gentile, these kingdoms would be magnificent. But to Daniel being a Jew, these nations are their purpose is to trample on Israel until the time of the Lord. So for Daniel, being a Jew, looking at these Gentile nations that would conquer the world, this is a frightful thing to behold. So God, understanding the person receiving the vision, um, gives them the appropriate vision for them to understand. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 to 3, we read, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. So just like Revelation chapter 13 and 17, where the angel interprets for John in Revelation, so an angel is there in Daniel and interprets this vision for Daniel. So regarding these beasts, the angel um, says to Daniel, uh, it said, I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So the angel said, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the high one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. For all ages to come. So these four kings that will come up from the earth, uh, which is the Hebrew way of saying from the nations outside of um, uh, Israel, but though they appear to be um, having full dominance over the earth, perhaps even receiving the kingdom promised to Israel, this is not true. The angel is saying that the saints of the high one, the people of God, will receive the kingdom. Um, it is not going to be passed over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will participate in the kingdom through the Jews receiving the kingdom. In Daniel uh, 7, 19 to 20, we read about the fourth beast that comes up. So this is um, immediately following the previous verses. It says, then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. So Daniel saw four beasts, um, and the fourth one caught his attention particularly. And that fourth beast is the one that we're looking at tonight in Revelation chapter 13. Um, so he catches Daniel's interest, and he asks further, and he says, 
Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. He was exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horns which came up, sorry, the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance in appearance than its associates. So we have these horns in the Hebrew personified. So although they are inanimate objects, they are given animation. They're spoken of as having eyes and mouths, uh, but they're also identified not using impersonal pronouns, but uh, personal human pronouns. So he speaks of them as he, him, uh, as persons. Uh, but these persons are like horns uh, on the head of a beast. And finally, he will call them associates, a word always used in context to speak about people in cooperation with one another. <clears throat> and the angel interprets this fourth beast for Daniel and says, thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. So we see uh, the final kingdom again being divided into 10 uh, pieces in Daniel chapter nine we also see 10 tracts of land that are divided. I um, mean, these tracts of land are given to 10 different kings. So just as the United States is a confederation of 50 states, we see that the final world government will be a confederation of 10 different regions um, consolidated under the power of a single world ruler. And three of those uh, regions will be conquered most likely through some war at the midpoint of the tribulation. And at that time, the Antichrist will take power over those nations where seven nations remain instead of 10, and he will be a ruler over those final seven. And we see the activity of that fourth beast is that he is speaking great boasts. Uh, that means he is speaking blasphemously to blaspheme is to slander uh, slander one in higher position than you, uh, particularly here used of slandering deity or slandering God himself. And he does that by claiming himself to be God. Uh, so in Daniel 7.25, we read, he will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the holy, holy, uh, the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So the alterations in times and law means a lot more to a Jewish mind and ear than to ours. This is speaking specifically of Jewish practices in their land. We will see that uh, the Jewish people will continue in their land throughout the first half of the tribulation period that we saw in uh, Revelation chapter 12, but the Antichrist will attempt to 
put an end to their sacrificial system, put an end to their religious celebrations, put an end to their use of the law in their land, and he will attempt to establish for himself a covenant with them where he will put himself in the place of God and command them how they ought to um, how they ought to deliberate themselves as a nation. And we remember that Israel is a theocracy and not an autocracy, where God gives them their laws uh, and man does not. So here we have a man dictating to Israel their laws. <clears throat> but we continue in chapter 13 to verse 2. And we read, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now, when we looked at chapter 12, we saw that the dragon and this beast look an awful lot alike. Um, they both have seven heads and ten horns. Uh, but we see that the dragon calls forth the beast out of the ocean but also that the dragon gives his power to uh, this beast. Again, similarity does not make uh, the same thing. Just because they're similar doesn't mean they are the same. We have one object or one subject acting on one object here. Um, so we know that they are distinct. But this also is a question sometimes used by Unitarians um, who do not believe in the Trinity where they say, because God the Father at many times looks an awful lot like God the Son, they must be one and the same, having no distinction. Uh, this is the same sort of power dynamic between Satan and the Antichrist as we have between God the Father and God the Son, where Jesus in John chapter 16, or chap John chapter 14 says that he comes, uh, sorry, no, that's John chapter seven, that he comes in the authority of God, that he hasn't come for his own purposes, but that he has come for the purposes of God. So we see that the Antichrist will arise and be doing the purposes of Satan, um, that he will have his own uh, desires, but that his desires will be fulfilled through fulfilling the will of Satan, uh, just as the Lord's will was entangled with God's will, so that everything that Jesus sought to do was not his own will, but the will of God. So we have to remember here that this is Satan's attempt to replicate the Trinity, to replicate the power structure that this kingdom of the earth was designed to be um, controlled by. Satan realizes that God has power higher than his own and seeks to imitate that power structure in order to gain control. But sin has darkened his understanding, as we read in Ezekiel uh, 28. So that uh, though he is a very intelligent being, his wisdom is darkened. He is unable to understand that he has no chance of taking the kingdom of the universe from God. Even though he is the ruler of this world, um, he cannot ascend to the throne of God. So this beast that we see in chapter 13, verse 2, rising out of the sea, is described as a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Now, this screams Daniel chapter 7, because these are the first three beasts that rise out out of the sea, is a lion, a bear, and a leopard. So we see that the fourth beast is a conglomeration of all of these prior beasts that have come out. Uh, they are identified for us 
uh, in in uh, Daniel, I think it is Gen Daniel chapter seven, if not also in two, as Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece are the first three beasts. So the Roman Empire is a ferocious beast that takes over the same kingdoms that were ruled by Babylonia, by Medo-Persia, and by Greece. So in Daniel chapter seven, we see the first beast was like a lion, and it had wings of an had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Uh, in my mind, at least in my understanding of this, uh, speaking of Babylon, uh, this speaks a lot of the rulership in Babylon where Nebuchadnezzar was made to spend seven years like an animal, um, and then it was finally given a mind of wisdom uh, when it recognized the one true God of Israel as the God of the universe. So we see a little redemption, but we also see the destruction of Babylon, where its wings were plucked from it. And eventually, uh, this kingdom was passed down to Nebuchadnezzar's nephew and lost to the Medo-Persians under Cyrus. Uh, the second is the bear, uh, Daniel 7, 5 says, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much, uh, arise, devour much meat. Now, interestingly, this bear is raised up on one side. You'll read in Daniel chapter 2 that the shoulders uh, or the breast of um, the second world kingdom was, uh, was raised on one shoulder. This is the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians coming together, where I believe it was the Persian government was actually much stronger than the Mede government, um, where it was... Uh, it's kind of hard to come up with a, a modern example of this. Perhaps the, uh, the British Empire and the Australian Empire are one's a lot stronger than the other, uh, but they are still one empire. That's not a great example, but um, historically, these two nations that came together to rule uh, and conquer other governments, one was more like a tag along. Um, it had more power in face uh, or in, uh, in name only, but not really in military might. But it did conquer uh, many governments, including Babylon and Assyria as well. The leopard being the third government, and this is actually the government that lasted until almost the time of Christ. I think it was 67 BC that the Greek empire uh, collapsed. In Daniel 7, 6, we read, after this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. Uh, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Uh, so this is identified for us as well in Daniel as the Greek empire. Uh, and I guess we're going to look at this more when we go through Daniel next. So um, I'll make sure I've got better research done for you on the history of these at that point. 
but um, the leopard was the Greek government. And then came the fourth beast. Uh, this is Daniel 7, 7. And it says, after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by their roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And these boasts, again, are, is the Hebrew word for blasphemies. So this, uh, this final world government uh, is not so interested as the, the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, and Greek governments of governing um, the people so much as it is trampling down the people and the other governments that is that it is associated with. In fact, later on in the, uh, in the book of Revelation, we'll see that this world government, just like Babylon uh, and others, didn't have uh, the full allegiance of every nation on the earth. Uh, being a world-dominating power just meant that it was, um, in essence, a power that dominated the entire earth. Right now, America and China really um, seem to battle it out for who is the world superpower. That's really what we're looking at in the, in the uh, world government at the end is not total world harmony, but a superpower that crushes down other world powers. Uh, there will be a war. Uh, in fact, Armageddon is that war where the nations of the East will come against the Antichrist. The nations of the East are probably some confederation of nations under possibly the Chinese government if it's still around at that time. Um, so we see that the Antichrist does not have the allegiance of all superpowers on the earth, but it will be a superpower um, that is unmatched to this day. Um, and it will be a conglomeration of all of those European powers that at one time have held world domination, such as Babylon, Greece, and uh, Medo-Persia, um, as well the first inflection of the Roman government. <clears throat> So uh, this world ruler, the Antichrist, uh, will be a human born of a woman and a man, unlike Christ, which was born of uh, a woman and the Holy Spirit. But it is very important that he be a man because that is Satan's uh, access point to, um, to having a Messiah or having a Christ. Uh, the world is looking for a man to rule them, not a spiritual being like Satan. Satan needs a man in which he can uh, put himself or to dwell among uh, the people. Though when Christ came to dwell among the people, he came to save them. Satan will come to dwell among the people so as to conquer them. And we see that Satan has offered to another man, uh, all of the kingdoms of the earth. In fact, in Matthew chapter four, verses eight through 10, he offered Christ himself, all of the nations of this earth. Uh, it is possible that in Satan's hubris, he thought that he might turn the Christ of God into his antichrist. 
because we see that the terms that Satan offered to Jesus was that he bowed down and worshiped Satan. Uh, Jesus answered him, of course, with the word of God, with scripture itself, and, uh, and told him, uh, not so, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus Christ proved to be a worthy Christ of God, uh, the God-man. But one man will take Satan up on his offer. He will not have the credentials of Jesus Christ, uh, not being uh, the Christ of God. But it will be, I guess you could say, the, the last resort of Satan, now knowing that his time is running short. So he will offer the world the kingdoms to a man who will dedicate himself totally to him. So we see that the Antichrist is demonically powered and demonically blinded as well. That'll become more clear when we see um, the kingdom of Babylon as mentioned in, in Revelation chapters 16 and 17. Uh, but we see that this conflict of um, the seed of the woman, which resulted in Jesus Christ, with the seed of the serpent that results in the Antichrist um, has really been the, the uh, river that runs through all of scripture, where at the same time God offered resurrection and restoration, redemption to mankind through the seed of the woman. He also said that there will be another power that rises up against this, uh, the seed of the woman, but it won't prevail against it. And that um, really has one of its last inflections here in the Antichrist, uh, the seed of the serpent. <clears throat> this conflict uh, we see for the first time uh, taking part uh, or um, entering into mankind's uh, sphere with Cain and Abel, where uh, Cain, who Eve believes to be, the Messiah, the chosen one, the seed of God, uh, when she says, I've gotten a man with the Lord, uh, she believes him to be the promised seed of the woman. Eve did not realize how many generations would intercede between this promise and its fulfillment. Um, mm -hmm. So when she had her first child, a male child, she believed this to be the Savior, and that proved not to be the case. Um, so Cain was uh, believed to be a Messiah, believed to be a savior, and he proved to be anything but. Rather than a giver of life, he became a taker of life. Uh, and the, the seed line ended up going through Seth, uh, but we see that he went through Seth not as a first resort, but as a last resort where it was passed to Seth because Abel had died, uh, where Cain had slain his brother Abel. And so Seth, was given the line of Christ, the line to the Redeemer. This Antichrist is also spoken of in Isaiah as the Assyrian. This has led a lot of uh, commentators to believe that the Antichrist will be Assyrian by blood. Um, I don't think there's good scriptural evidence for that because uh, Ezekiel uses uh, uses the king of Tyre as a symbol of the Antichrist to come. And Assyria and Tyre uh, do not come from the same bloodline. So I don't believe that the 
using a type shows us what uh, nationality the Antichrist will be. And that's what this is in Isaiah. The Assyrian was an actual Assyrian um, historical figure, a conqueror um, who came and conquered the land of Israel. But uh, many of the prophecies about this Assyrian were not fulfilled by this Assyrian. Just like in Ezekiel, when, uh, when Ezekiel is given visions about a, uh, the king of Tyre, there are many things which the king of Tyre could not, have, could not have been true about the king of Tyre, such as he was present in the Garden of Eden, um, and he was created on one day, and he walked among the, uh, the mountains of God. These images given to us in Ezekiel point us to the fact that Ezekiel is having a dual uh, image here, a, a type and an anti-type fulfillment, where uh, God uses one of his very common means of uh, interpretation, where there is a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment of a prophecy, so that we see God gives us a type of the fulfillment. He gives us the prophecy, then he gives us a type that points us towards how this will be fulfilled, and then he gives us a final fulfillment. We see this in Daniel, where he speaks of a, uh, a man who will put himself in the temple of God and claim to be God. He calls this the, uh, the abomination of desolation. Well, there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes who seems to fill many of these uh, many of the aspects of this uh, prophecy in Daniel. But when Christ came on the scene in the Gospels a few hundred later, a few hundred years later after Antiochus Epiphanes, he says that wasn't the fulfillment. But when you see a man like that come into the temple of God, that will be the Antichrist. So we're not left with only scripture and scripture's interpretation, but God also takes care to make sure that he gives us, um, just like it's playing out on stage for us, a near fulfillment so that we understand how, when that is fulfilled, it will be fulfilled. So that, I think, is what is going on here in Isaiah 10 with the Assyrian. He is saying, uh, he's giving to the original audience that Isaiah was writing to, uh, I believe this is still under King Isaiah. Um, what will happen when it is conquered? And this is speaking of the, uh, the northern kingdom that will be conquered by Assyria. But he uses this to paint a, a picture of what the final conquering of Israel will be uh, under the Antichrist. So we see it has a near fulfillment and then a much more complete far fulfillment. So with all that, um, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Uh, we read, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while, my indignation against you will be spent and my anger will be di directed toward their destruction. In Micah, uh, Micah picks up this image of the Assyrian uh, after the Assyrian conquering of the northern kingdom. So we see he grabs onto that as well, and he speaks to uh, Israel uh, 
or not Israel, Judah, which has not been conquered by the Assyrians, but conquered by the Babylonians. But he speaks uh, futuristically here still. He says, when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples our citadels, then we will raise a, rise against him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. They will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land and when he tramples our territory. Micah here is using a historical symbol, this Assyrian that conquered the 10 tribes of Israel. When he is speaking to the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin that have not been conquered, but he is speaking to them about a future event. So he's saying when one comes like this Assyrian, uh, he will be conquered and he will be conquered by the one who delivers us. He will deliver us from the Assyrian. Now, for means of time, I haven't included the whole argument from Micah from chapter one to four. This is his conclusion in chapter five. The same goes for Isaiah. That was the... Uh, the tail end of his description of the Assyrian. So I would encourage you all to go and look at Isaiah's prophecy, go and look at Micah's prophecy. Uh, again, these are probably things that we'll look at in more detail when we do Daniel, but for sake of time, we have to move on from those. Uh, but we see that the Antichrist's uh, character will be a blasphemous character that he will claim for himself to be God, just as the source of his power, Satan, claims for himself to be God. In Daniel 11:36, we see, then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. So what we're looking at here is the beginning of a satanic trinity. We have in chapter 12, the great dragon. We have now the dragon's messiah, the man whom he has chosen to be his under king, his theocratic administrator. So, you know, in our, uh, in our foundation series that we've been doing, looking at the covenants, we see that God established this earth in order to be ruled by mankind with uh, God is the ruler of the universe and mankind ruling on God's behalf. Adam was installed as that theocratic administrator, but almost immediately failed. So God set in place a way that he would have success in this kingdom. And he, uh, he sent a second Adam or the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman being man. Luke's genealogy traces him all the way back to Adam. Uh, and that man will rule the kingdom, the kingdom of this earth, in the way that God intended for Adam to rule this earth, to have dominion over it. Uh, but Satan has attempted to uh, position himself as a, uh, as a god over a theocratic administrator. He is the god to this antichrist, just as God is the God over the theocratic administrator, Jesus Christ, during the millennial kingdom. So Satan is trying to bring into the earth 
a kingdom much like the kingdom will be under Jesus Christ, but rather than God as its source of power, he is trying to establish himself as its source of power. And this is just doomed to fail, not just in scripture, but because Satan does not even have the authority uh, to install a theocratic administrator. He himself has authority only over this earth, whereas God has authority over the entire universe and creation by extent. So Satan cannot use a lower footstool to step up onto a higher footstool, uh, but he also can't cross that creator-creature distinction. Satan was a part of creation. He was created by God. He cannot usurp God's position, but he can usurp another created being's position. That was mankind. We're going to look at that more in the next few verses, but for summary, for the first two verses, um, Satan has sought God's throne since the beginning. God, who intended to rule over the earth through a mediator, cannot be usurped on the universal throne. So you, the universal throne cannot be taken from God, but the theocratic throne, the throne of this earth, can and has been usurped from mankind. But God will be victorious on this earth, and his king will rule over this earth in the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ as its head. But Satan will try to put his Christ in before Jesus Christ rules over the kingdom. So having received the kingdoms of the earth, that is Satan, he has deluded himself into believing that he can ascend above the clouds of God to God's throne. That comes from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. But realizing the shortness of his time, he sees God's word coming true to the letter. Uh, he knows his time is short. He seeks a mere man not Jesus Christ, to be his Christ on this earth, his anointed one. Thus, two of the three members of the satanic trinity are depicted to this point.